Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, I am again away on holiday, so my colleague Stuart Watson will be covering the week's uh, market and investment trust news. Next comes the second part of my conversation with Russell Napier, the financial historian and market strategist, who is also coincidentally the independent chairman of the Midwine International Investment Trust, from whose manager Simon Edelston we heard last week. And then we'll move on to my pre-recorded interview with Jeanette Rutherford, Emeritus Professor of Finance at the Open University, in which he talks about the lessons that investors can usefully draw from the long history of investment trusts and some of the more consequential episodes in their history, starting with the bearing crisis of 1890 and its aftermath, and finishing with the split capital trust scandal of two decades ago, now very much mercifully a fading, and we almost hope, never-to-be-repeated memory. Her research on this topic was carried out with an academic colleague, Dimitris Sotiropoulos. A reminder here, then, that the next edition of the podcast will be released in 10 days' time and not on next Saturday afternoon. After that, we will be reverting to our normal schedule. It was a relatively quiet week for the stock market, with both the FTSE All Share and the Investment Trust Index down over the first four days of the week, but by less than 1%. Government bond yields in both the US and UK rose a little, reversing part of the falls that they saw last week. And we get the latest monthly US inflation figures and the interest rate decision from the Fed next week. Sticking with the US, shares of Coinbase, the cryptocurrency exchange, they fell sharply after the SEC launched a lawsuit against both it and rival exchange Binance, saying that operations were in violation of US securities law. There is a long-running debate in the US as to whether cryptocurrencies are securities. Back here in the UK, a selection of growth capital, private equity and property trusts were among the biggest rises of the week, although a notable faller was Warehouse REIT following the publication of its annual results. More on those figures a bit later. The sector average discount narrowed a tiny bit to 15.1%. There are a lot of results this week, so I'll just focus on a few of them. Worldwide Healthcare Trust, that's ticker WWH, saw a negative 0.1% NAV decline in the year ended 31st of March, and that lagged the positive 2.5% return from its benchmark, which is the MSCI World Healthcare Index. The discount on the shares widened to about 9%, and that led to about £90 million of buybacks, as the trust has a discount control policy that is triggered at 6%. Worldwide Healthcare has a large weighting to what it calls emerging biotech, which is essentially smaller and less mature companies, and also to emerging markets, especially China. And this was a drag on its performance again this year, albeit not to the same extent as last year, when it trailed its benchmark by a very large 25 percentage points. The trust is also proposing a 10 for 1 share split, and the shares joined the market back in 1995 at £1, and they're now £32, although well, they were almost as high as £40 back in early 2021, when its tilt towards emerging biotech and emerging markets was much more in favour. Fidelity China Special Situations, ticker FCSS, that's a highly geared trust run by Dale Nichols, it had another volatile year. At one point, the shares were down nearly 30%, that was at the end of October, but they recovered to be up 22% on the year just three months later at the end of January 2023. But for the whole year to the 31st of March, they ended up with just a 0.3% gain. The NAV return was 2.6% and the benchmark was in the middle of that with a 1.4% return. Fidelity China bought back nearly 5% of its shares last year in an attempt to keep its discount in the single digits and it spent a total of £57 million on that. Its gearing was 21% at the year end and its loan facility was recently renewed for one year at an interest rate of around 6.3%. However, the trust said it wants to put in a longer-term borrowing facility in place when this facility matures. STS Global Income and Growth, that's ticker STS, that's, as of this week, the new name for Securities Trust of Scotland. 
the Global Equity Income Trust, which has been managed by Troy since late 2020, saw an NAV return of minus 1.8% in the year to 31st of March. That was a little behind its benchmark, which is a global equity income index that's produced by Lipper, which recorded a 0.5% gain. The dividend for the year was 6.2p, and that was up 5.5% on the previous year, but it's still a little behind the level it was when Troy first took charge of the portfolio two and a half years ago and reshaped the portfolio. The name change was said to better describe the company's objectives and to make it easier for investors to find when searching online or on retail platforms. LXI REIT, ticker LXI, produced its first annual figure since its merger with Secure Income REIT. This is a very large trust now. It's uh, 350 property assets. It's over 200 million in annual rental income and its properties are valued at £3.6 billion. Its long index linked leases have an average of 27 years to their first breakpoint. Although any rent rises, they're typically capped and collared between around 1% and 4%. So LXI doesn't get the full benefit of the high inflation figures we've seen recently. LXI has recently refinanced its debts. It's got a mixture of 3, 5 and 16 year terms. And it increased its dividend this year from 6.0p to 6.3p. And it set a target of 6.6p for next year, which is a 5% increase. The NAV return for last year was minus 11%, with the average yield using its valuations going from 4.5% to 5.4%, a common theme with many property trusts we've seen recently. Warehouse REIT Logistics Specialist, that's ticker WHR, that saw a much larger NAV decline, which was minus 25.7%, as the yields it used in its valuations rose a lot more, about 1.3 percentage points. It's completed about £90 million of disposals, and that's to keep its debt ratio in line with its 30 to 40% target rate, and there's possibly more disposals to come. But the Trust has high hopes for a large site it's developing near Junction 16 of the M6 at Crewe, that's called Rabway 16. It's got planning permission for 1.8 million square feet of warehousing space, and negotiations were said to be well advanced on 350,000 square feet of that in the first phase. We also had annual results this week from JZ Capital Partners, JP Morgan European Growth and Income, Aberdeen Japan, and Schroeder Real Estate. And we had interim figures from BlackRock Frontiers, Edinburgh Worldwide, JP Morgan Indian, Bearings Emerging EMEA Opportunities, Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, and Residential Secure Income. We also heard from Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI, and that provided more details on the RUMS solar project in India, where significant cost increases were flagged prior to starting construction. This in turn led to a delay in the publication of the Trust's annual accounts due to material uncertainties about the figures. Shares in the Trust were suspended on the 24th of April, as it was set to miss the standard four-month deadline to produce its annual report. So the cost increases related to supply chain issues and new customs duties in India on imported solar components. The custom duties, though, were introduced back in April 2022, but the full scale of all the cost increases didn't come to the board's attention until a year later in April 2023. So there's some questions to answer there. Thomas Lloyd said it was unlikely to proceed with construction, although this could incur $33.5 million of liabilities, although much of that it believes can be mitigated. However, it would have to inject $44 million of new equity if it was to complete the project. And then the project would probably most likely still have a negative valuation at that point. The trust is holding its AGM on 30th of June when its four directors are up for re-election. But it's seeking to delay a continuation vote, which has been triggered by failing to invest three quarters of its IPO proceeds within 12 months of its listing, which was in late 2021. It's difficult to see the trust surviving that continuation vote, given the chain of events here. There's still uncertainty about some of the numbers involved, so there's no timescale on the publication of the annual report or the restoration of trading in the shares. Unfortunately, as taxpayers, we all own a stake in this business, as the Foreign and Commonwealth Office bought 32 million shares at the IPO, and they were valued about £25 million at the suspension price. CK Asset Holdings is bringing forward the deadline for its bid, for Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH, and it's bringing it forward from the 21st of July to the 23rd of June. CK currently owns about 17% of Civitas shares, 
but it's only received valid acceptances for a further 0.25%. As of Friday morning, Supertas shares were unchanged on this news and still trading fractionally below the ATP bid price. Lastly, the investment company, that's ticker INV, that provided an update on appointing Shelverton as its new investment manager, along with plans for a tender offer, a share issue and a share split. Further details will be in a circular and a prospectus that will be published shortly, and there will be a shareholder vote, which is due to take place on the 26th of June. This is a very small trust at the moment, with assets of under £20 million, but it is one of the very oldest in the sector, as it dates all the way back to 1868. Links to all these announcements and other major trust news is available for subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle where this week's trust profile is Hydrogen One Capital Growth, an interesting new fund specialising in so-called green hydrogen companies and projects. Next week's profile will be Pacific Horizon, one of many growth-orientated trusts run by Bailey Gifford. Head on over to the Moneymakers website at money-makers.co for full details of how to subscribe. On now to my conversation with Russell Napier about the problems that excessive levels of debt are creating for policymakers and, by extension, investors and savers who have to deal with the consequences. His argument is that the simplest and also therefore the most likely way that governments will deal with the unprecedented amount of debt that has been piled onto the global economy in the last decade is to allow above-target inflation to gradually erode away the real value of that debt a policy known as financial repression, and most likely, in his view, supported by steps to control the free flow of capital through active interventionist government policies. Well, we have seen, as you say, you pointed out, a very big price correction in the bond market. A lot of losses already, at least on paper, and indeed in practice as these bonds progress. So if your scenario is right, Basically, are we saying you don't really want to own bonds for the next 30 years? Is that what we're saying, essentially? We're very clearly saying that. I mean, bond bear markets tend to go in 30-year cycles, and one can tactically trade them. But uh, that's not a job for the private investor. And, and frankly, I think it's not even a job for the professional investor. It's so difficult to do. You know, I note the two um, recessions in the 1970s, and you did make a little bit of money on bonds, but frankly, just staying out of bonds for the whole 70s was a much better thing to do. And the real rally in those two uh, recessions was in equities, actually. You could yeah. almost double your money in equities. So if one is looking for opportunities to trade recessions, if you like, as they pass, then I think you're better to stick with equities. And the world is full of cheap equities. That's one of my fundamental differences with some people. I think there's, you know, they're not a big chunk of market capitalization. Don't get me wrong. The entire S&P is grossly overvalued. But across the planet, you can find cheap shares to own. And I think dealing with this, you know, back to the key question that everybody wants answered, how do you deal with all of this? It's buying cheap equities where you don't have a valuation risk and where earnings will reward you. Because in a financial repression scenario, corporate earnings do all right. In nominal terms, anyway, they do all right. It's the problem is if you buy a high valuation that you can get punished, as you did from 1966 to 1982. So it's going to be equities as how you deal with this. But you're so far away from the so-called benchmark that it would be quite scary for any professional manager to go that route. But that's where I think you should go. Japan, emerging markets, value equities, old economy equities, add all that up and you probably get 15% of global market capitalization. But we've come to an extreme situation where extreme asset allocation is warranted. And if it isn't going to be bonds, really, it has to be equities in some form. And there is another asset called gold, which probably does relatively well. So you can be a bear on the S&P 500 and still want to have your portfolio in equities. But obviously not if you're running a market cap weighted equity allocation, where I'm pretty sure you're going to lose money in real terms if you get dragged into 62% in US equities and then all of it in the S&P. So this is the end of the kind of great indexing phenomenon of the last uh, 34 years, is it? Yes, I could have said that last year, the year before. The year before <laughs> that, as you know, it's been a perennial thing. I mean, it'll probably end slowly. I'm not suggesting it ends quickly, but that's the opportunity, actually. And yeah. uh, I do ponder, I don't deal with algorithms, but I do ponder when the algorithms begin to pick up a new trend, they might move very quickly. I mean, they are trend-following, momentum-orientated beasts. I'm looking at Japan, I'm looking at Nippon Steel, up 24% this year, POSCO and Korea Steel Company, up 30-odd percent this year. I just wonder if it can actually move quite quickly, not the indexing per se, but these algorithms. 
that they suddenly start jumping on these new trends that emerge and huge amounts of money move. So it's good. I would say this. It's good to move early on these things, I think, because it's very difficult to work out just how quickly it changes. I think the indexing thing will change slowly, but the algorithms might change quickly. And the algorithms are doing a chunky bit of the volume in the markets these days. We haven't mentioned commercial property or residential property even. What's your view on that? I mean, that's an issue which a lot of people are worried about at the moment because they have debt issues as well, of course. What's your historical take on property? I mean, it did quite well, didn't it, after the war in relative terms? Yes, it did. And I would say generally it probably will in nominal terms. Uh, But the big thing about after the war is leverage. I did once look a long time ago now at the rise in UK property prices, residential property prices during the 70 relative to inflation. They seem to be roughly in line with inflation. But everybody told me they made a lot of money. And of course, they did because they were geared to the eyeballs. If you had been able to borrow money, then you absolutely made a lot of money. But it was from the gearing. So the secret to a financial repression is to keep nominal interest rates low and wage growth high. You know, we're talking about solving a debt problem. And if you can do that, then I think that is consistent with rising residential property prices, though not necessarily outstripping the growth rate of inflation, and particularly because we start with a high degree of leverage. You know, that's where we're starting. This is not like 1969 when we started with a low degree of leverage over residential property. So I think they will succeed. Obviously, if you believe in financial repression, you believe they succeed in holding rates down at the current level or below as nominal wages grow. And therefore, I think that's consistent with higher returns on residential property. The real price probably comes down over the 20-year period, but the nominal price probably goes up. Commercial property is much easier. It's a sell. And that's not just because of the structural changes associated with COVID and working from home. In a financial repression, the state gets involved in steering credit to productive sources. And uh, that's a choice of government. And they're just not going to believe that commercial property is a productive use for debt. I don't think they'll believe that private equity is a productive use for debt. Uh, And therefore, if they steer through the banking system, and what is the Rachel Reeves Jeremy Hunt plan? It is to use your savings, to steer your savings to where they want them to be. I can absolutely assure you that in the British Growth Fund, they're not going to be funding private equity. They're not going to be funding commercial property. That would be a political nightmare for them. So I think you should stay clear of Commercial property, I'm sure there's some smart operators in the business who can do a decent job. But overall, I think the, the levels of leverage in that part of the system will come down. You know, For 30 odd years now, the, the simple way to get rich was to find an income stream and gear the hell out of it. And many people did. And I think in a politicized world of credit, that game is over. One of them might become president of the United States, of course, quite soon. <laughs> so finally, I wanted to ask you, Russell, in addition to your work as a financial historian and the spending institution, the Library of Mistakes, you're also the chairman of Investment Trust. And I wonder what your thoughts about the Investment Trust sector are. You're the chairman of a global investment trust called Midwine International. But we're not going to talk about that one specifically. But what's your thought about the investment trust sector in the kind of conditions you're talking about? We've seen massive derating, particularly amongst alternative asset trusts. This is going to be a period when the investment trust sector has to consolidate, does it not? There's going to be quite a lot of change in the investment trust sector, is there not, if the world develops, as you say? There is going to be a lot of change. Where to begin? Big subject. There is significant concentration in the wealth management industry, as you know, mergers, acquisitions. That means that the size of the closed-end funds that they're prepared to contemplate would need to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's just simply a reality. And that's putting a huge amount of pressure on smaller trusts to make sure they're on the radar screen of wealth managers. You either go direct to the consumer via the platforms, the self-advised investor. But if you find yourself needing to go to the wealth managers, you're going to need to be a certain size. And of course, I often consult with experts on that, Jonathan. And every time I ask an expert, Two years apart, it's 100 million higher than it was the year before. So certainly in excess of 400 million is the number that is bandied around that you would need to be above. So that's the first thing. However, the interesting thing about investment trusts is that they have this flexibility, obviously, which the mutual funds don't have. And that's a flexibility to take leverage. And dare I mention the name unlisted? So I'm not sure that I do, given what's going on in the world. But this flexibility is really important in a financial repression. You know, if a government wants to inflate away debt, maybe it's a good time to take out debt. And maybe that flexibility of the investment trust, I'm assuming it owns the right assets, is now going to be warranted. There are many other things that an investment trust might do 
to cope with a financial repression that perhaps mutual funds wouldn't. So in the last repression, which ran from 45 to 79, mutual funds were almost non-existent. I mean, not non-existent, but you know, they were much, much smaller than they are today. The growth of the mutual fund industry requires one thing and one thing only, which is liquidity. And without liquidity, they can't exist because they have to provide daily redemptions. And the, the interesting thing about a financial repression is liquidity should come down. That's when you want to have an investment trust and not a mutual fund if there are issues with liquidity. For instance, one of the policies that we used in the past to try and steer our financial repression was a high transaction tax stamp duty. And that's obviously not, doesn't apply to these institutions at the minute, but it could come back. There are all sorts of things that the government could do, which would be negative for liquidity. So the investment trust, I'm really sure the investment trust is the structure for the next 30 years. That still has a challenge for the board, <laughs> challenge for the manager to use the structure properly. But I think you have tools there that the mutual fund doesn't have. So I wouldn't want to use the word renaissance for the investment trust. It's a long road back to be where it was 30 odd years ago, but it's the right place to be. Right. And so then in that context, then you're the chairman of a trust which does have a discount control policy. Do you think that the prices of investment trusts should be allowed to take the strain? Is it mandatory, if you be that way, for boards to try and control the discounts or not? Obviously, it depends on the kind of asset you're investing in. It just depends on the asset. I can just tell you, because I read my board papers, that we can liquidate 99% of the portfolio in a day. So it doesn't make it too difficult for us to commit to that. And we've got a very firm commitment to that and had it for many years and had it when the trust was much smaller. So I wouldn't use the word mandatory. It depends on the assets. But that's something that every investor knows when they look at the trust. They can look at the assets. And if the assets are highly liquid, that will be there. I mean, you know, if it took us four or five, six or seven days to, to liquidate, you know, volume comes down in the marketplace. Given where we start, that really doesn't make any difference. But there are some trusts, particularly with unlisted, for where this is much more difficult. Also, it can be more difficult for the board to work out what the actual NAV is. And nobody wants to be buying shares at a premium. I mean, it seems unlikely given where discounts are at the minute. But the problem with that bit that's difficult to value is it, it does complicate the issue of, of when you buy back and what price you buy back at. You have to be really sure you're buying back at a discount. I don't think that's a problem at the minute for most trusts. But when you've got a highly liquid portfolio, it's really very, very simple to run such a policy. And of course, the, this kind of surge in alternative assets in particular has been a recent phenomenon and not unconnected to, uh, of course, the global financial crisis and the fact that the banks have pulled out of a lot of areas which are now effectively being funded in this way. you think that's healthy or not? So the search for yield has taken some trusts, I mean, not just trusts, across the world, the search for yield has created problems. If there is one lesson from financial history, and there's more than one, but if there's one, is that in an age of falling yields, people take higher risk in search of income. Clearly, that's happened. Obviously, it's happened. It's happened everywhere in every kind of nook and cranny of the global economy. And it would be perverse if some investment trusts hadn't found themselves in the same situation. So we're now living with the consequences of that. As Mr. Buffett says, the tide has gone out and we'll see who's swimming naked. But worth stressing, it's not just investment trusts that have this problem. The Swedes seem to be having a little bit of a problem with this at the minute. It's got to uh, the Canadians, I think, will have a big problem with this as well. So it's an interesting just which countries and asset classes are going to have the biggest problem having been in this search for yield. Where, where your rates were lowest, then I think you've taken the biggest risk in pursuit of yield. We all seem to think that we deserve income on our investments. It's a reasonable psychological situation to be in. Uh, but we never consider the risks we take to get that income and huge risks have been taken to get it. And leverage, and huge amounts of leverage have been used to supplement it. Do you think we'll also see more examples of the bezel or just outright fraud? I don't know what they want. Do you think we're going to see that come to the surface as well? We've seen obviously one or two examples in the last few months. Sadly, one of them apparently or seemingly in the investment trust sector. There's going to be more of that, is there? Well, the bezel's a, a quote from John Kenneth Galbraith. I mean, it's a little short little book, still one of the bestsellers, really worth reading. And of course, you know, when interest rates are low, lots of things happen that are stupid and illegal. It's kind of surprising we haven't seen a few more, given where rates have got to. So yeah, I strongly expect to see a few more. There was one potentially in another court case in yesterday's newspaper in the Financial Times. I won't mention names, but you know, there are going to be a lot of these things propping up. But the key point here is they're everywhere. We have interest rates going back to Sumerian times. So we've got 5,000 years of data of dubious quality. Obviously, if we go back to 3,000 BC, but this is the lowest rates ever were in history. If you didn't think that some fraudster was going to take advantage of that, then I think that would be naive. So there's plenty of bezel out there. And by definition, we don't actually know where it is, but we all have ideas where it might be. But I'm afraid, sadly, 
yeah, there's more of that to come. Well, you mentioned uh, one book which people should read, which is Galbraith on the Great Crash. As the keeper of the Library of Mistakes, you're obviously uh, well aware of the importance of people, investors understanding the lessons of financial history. Is there a couple of titles you might pick out that people could read at the moment, which might be relevant to what's happening now? I mean, yeah, I'm asking well, this question off the cuff, so I haven't given you time to prepare an answer, but what would you say? Apart from your own books, of course. Of course. So the one I always recommend as the one that has to be read is Triumph of the Optimists by Dimson, Marsh and Staunton. Now, it's a little bit out of date, but it's still got 100 years of data in it. And it is the history of returns for bonds, cash effectively, and equities. And that is an expensive book. We have it in the Library of Mistakes, so you should come and visit. But that's really, really important because I think even professional investors are not actually that well calibrated to the art of the possible. I, the art of the possible return, the art of the average return, the impact on real returns and nominal returns. And it's all in the book and it's you know 100 years of data and you get some idea of the art of the possible. When we buy an automobile, we are very well familiar with what it's likely to do on a tank of petrol or what the maximum speed is. But I think most people are not really that well calibrated in what's likely to be an, an average or reasonable return. And therefore, when they're promised outlandish returns, they don't really recognize them for what they are, which is either someone taking a huge degree of risk, someone adding a huge degree of leverage, or someone who's a genius. And the third one, I think, does exist, but it's well hidden sometimes and not easy to find. So I think that's the book to read. It's not updated regularly, but only for professional investors and clients of a certain investment bank. But it would be nice to get a, a new copy of that out, updated, and they've added more countries in as well. So we can all calibrate ourselves to what is reasonable. And that's what financial history is about, really. It's about looking at past outcomes as a guide to future outcomes. And what better past outcome is there than the history of returns themselves? Would you like to see that spread into schools and higher education, teaching awareness of this as, as much as teaching them ridiculous mathematical models and so on? Yep. So in schools, I think it has to be more basic personal finance. And the charity, by the way, that owns the Library of Mistakes and runs a course in finance called the Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, we make money out of that bit. So we have in the past financed people to teach basic personal finance in schools. But it may be going on to universities when people are getting more towards buying investment products, which they're really not interested in when they're in school. It wouldn't take long. It would be a half hour lecture to calibrate people on the art of the possible for investment returns and to slightly inoculate them from the salesperson who will promise them 20% per annum to infinity and that sort of thing, which I think if you're not properly calibrated, you can fall for. You think, well, you watch television, you see all these incredibly wealthy people and you assume they're all compounding at 20, but actually that's not real life. So I'd, I'd like to see it taught in universities. I think schools might be a bit of a stretch. Just basically personal budgeting would be a huge challenge just to get into school. So I think in the English schools, that's there's a little bit of that beginning to happen. Not yet in the Scottish schools, but we are doing our best at the Didasco Education Company to do something about that. Well, Russell, it's been a great pleasure talking to you as always. Do please keep up the good work. As you say, the Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh is free to visit, I believe, and you'll find it in, uh, what's the name of the street? It's behind Melville Street, I know. Melville Street Lane. And the reason we met last week inside the Bank of England to discuss the Festival of Mistakes is that we're trying to open one in London. So if anybody listening has some time on their hands, some money on their hands, or more importantly, some space, excess space, and that's, I think it's not uncommon within the bounds of the city of London these days to have a little bit of excess space, uh, just get in touch. You can find me on the uh, Library Mistakes website, and we may well bring mistakes to London. As I said at the opening event, Jonathan, it'd be nice to bring some mistakes to London or import some to London, because uh, you've been exporting them for so long. <laughs> I like the way you say you I don't take personal responsibility for that uh, I think you should bring it to Oxford actually which is where I live that would be a valuable centre right in the middle of the country if you find a space I'll bring the books fantastic so that was Russell Napier the uh, financial historian and as we just said the keeper of the library mistakes in Edinburgh and uh, hopefully elsewhere in the UK as well as overseas I should mention they've got a couple of overseas branches as well doesn't seem to have done the Swiss much good though I don't think so far It's always helpful for investors to have a grasp of the long history of investment trusts. And one of the reasons for talking to my next guest, Professor Jeanette Rutherford, is to talk about the history of investment trusts, which goes back to the second half of the 19th century, and to talk about some of the mistakes that were made over the last 150 plus years, what investors today can learn from that, and what investment trust managers and boards can learn from those episodes going back into history. 
And so, Professor Rutherford, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to take you back, if I may, straight away to 1890 and uh, the so-called bearing crisis, which I see is described on Wikipedia, at least, as being one of the most best-known financial disasters in recent history. In the course of a lecture you gave at the Library of Mistakes a little while ago, you talked about that episode and the lessons could be drawn for that as part of a general presentation on this history of mistakes uh, through history as far as they affect investment trusts. So let's start with the bearing crisis of 1890. And perhaps you could tell us, first of all, what actually happened during the bearing crisis. And then we'll go on to talk about what the consequences were for investment trusts, what lessons were drawn from that. Well, you've got to remember that in the 19th century, there was a big tradition of countries borrowing money in hard currency, in dollars or in sterling, and ending up in trouble. So it wasn't new that Argentina in the late 1880s was experiencing a balance of payments crisis, but it actually ended up with a partial default on its dollar liabilities. And then Bering Brothers, which was a merchant bank established in 1763, a very famous and serious bank, was caught up in the crisis. It was underwriting a new issue of the Buenos Aires Water Supply and Drainage Loan, and it then informed the Bank of England on 8th of November 1890, that it was in trouble. It hadn't got enough money. It hadn't got anybody to underwrite the issue. And the bank intervened to save Bearings Bank and settle Argentina's debt. So that's the sort of scenario that was happening in the late 1880s. And the issue for Bearings was, as with many investment trusts at the time, as it happened, obviously Bearings was a bank rather than an investment trust, but a lot of investors were invested in overseas government bonds. That was the way that investment trusts managed their portfolios and why they existed, in fact, in the first instance. And they did have an element of diversification. They did own bonds in, across a number of different overseas markets. So what happened to investment trusts following the bearing crisis? What lessons were learned from that? And how did that affect the way that investment trusts were managed from that point on? Well, basically, they thought that they were safe from even a global crisis because they believed in what was called the global diversification of risk, which was that if one country did well, another did badly and so on. And they weren't prepared for a general problem with a major part of their portfolio because investment trusts at that time had 18% in Argentina alone and had more than the US in Latin America and certainly a lot more than the UK. So they were very bullish on Latin America. And unfortunately, those holdings, they didn't sell them. They decided to hold on to them. And their share prices really suffered as a result. And what's interesting is that the banking sector didn't suffer at all after the help provided by the Bank of England. They managed to have no ripple effect on banks, but investment trusts were the only sector that really suffered. And what they learned was that it wasn't enough to be diversified. You had to be cautious and build up reserves. And so what they did was they had a very conservative accounting system, which was that if they made a capital gain, they didn't spend it. They used it to create hidden reserves and ordinary reserves for the next crash. So they were very conservative and they built up these reserves so that if there was another global crisis, they could handle it. You say it had a very serious effect on investment trust. What kind of losses did they incur as a result of having this excessive exposure to what turned out to be not very well diversified overseas government and other bond holdings? Well, I'm looking at a chart here and it's, it looks like 60% fall in their value. Right, which is quite dramatic and uh, on a par with the worst we've seen subsequently. And this was at a time when actually... As you say, the stock market as a whole, the UK stock market was still performing pretty well. Yes, everything else, banks and, and so on, did very well. But investment trusts mirrored the performance of Argentinian government bonds and Argentinian railway bonds, which is what they held. And they plummeted 60%, so so did the investment trust. So that was very devastating for the investment trust sector. So that message was taken on board by the directors of investment trusts at the time. What were the consequences of that? They put aside this money for reserves, and that's still the practice today and is always given as one of the strengths of the investment trust sector, that they do have reserves they can call on. Did they become too conservative as a result of that, would you say? Well, no, I wouldn't, because what happened in the 1920s was that 
they had a lot of dollar securities, either from countries like Argentina, which issued dollar securities, or from buying American railroads or whatever. And during World War I, the government pressured them to sell their bonds and be given war loan instead. And that gave the government hard currency so that they'd reduce their holdings in American securities. But there was still this amazing moment sort of after the war for about three years when sterling was off the gold standard and it was believed very seriously that it was going back on. So you knew what the exchange rate was probably going to be, which was the exchange rate pre-World War I. And so what they did was they sold a lot, of, almost all their dollar securities, and made a capital gain, and then parked it, as we said, in reserves. So they became opportunistic and not quite as wedded to a, a long-term asset allocation as they had when they entered the bearing crisis. And that turned out to be fortuitous. So they made quite a lot of money out of that particular trade, as it were. But also when it came to the Great Wall Street crash of 1929 and uh, all the bad things that followed from that... They actually survived that in pretty good shape. And I think you compare that usefully to what happened in the US at the same time, where they also had uh, investment trusts at that time. Yes, there were a lot of books written in the 1920s urging the Americans to adopt this British investment trust miracle because they were doing very well. The other thing about investment trusts is that they borrowed money. They issued debentures and preference shares. And so there was a leveraged investment in the market. But they were very careful to manage the cost of their debt and the yield that they got on their investment. And so there was a big gap, and that was the reserves that they created. But anyway, these American investment trusts were created in the 1920s, but they didn't follow the British model. First of all, they bought US domestic securities. They didn't have global diversification. Secondly, they took capital gains and paid them out as dividends because the dividend yields in the 1920s in the bull market of the 1920s were very low, and they couldn't pay a decent yield on their debt unless they used the capital gain. And the other quite amusing thing is that the way of choosing securities was very different. In the UK, you had the small number of directors of the trust who would meet on a Wednesday afternoon with a cigar and a glass of port and would decide which shares to buy, say, say, hear, hear from the market that we should be buying this security. And the Americans had a completely different approach. They employed a load of technical analysts, well, not in the modern sense of the world, but analysts, to identify sectors and to try and pick stocks and do market timing. And so they ended up being in a very difficult position when the American market collapsed, because they were entirely in the American market. And worse than that, they've taken this leverage argument and sort of multiplied it by 100 because they did cross holdings between trusts and that meant you had leverage on leverage on leverage and when things started going wrong because of the cross holdings you ended up with a domino effect and these american trusts fell by way more than 90 percent some of them ended up being almost worthless and that led to the investment trusts in the u.s being emasculated by the investment company act of 1940, when they were strictly limited on what they could borrow and what they could do in terms of cross-holding. Right. So they'd made the classic mistake of A, market timing, and B, getting over-leveraged and compounding it, as you say, with these leveraged cross-holdings, which increased the volatility and and wiped out many of them, as is uh, chronicled in histories of the Wall Street crash and so on. The investment trusts were blamed partly for the crash, because what they were doing was they were issuing securities which held other investment securities which held other investment securities. And they were making money on the distribution. They were charging a commission for distributing these things. And, of course, there was a huge demand because the market was in its last stages of euphoria. I mean, to give you an idea, in 1927, $1 billion of capital was raised for investment trusts. In the first nine months of 1929, $8 billion was raised. Right. So it was a huge bonanza that, uh, as we can see with hindsight and probably would have known at the time, if you'd been around, Jeanette uh, was going to end in tears, basically. <laughs> we could predict that. Um, what was happening in, back in the UK? Uh, it was very different a few of them missed a dividend or two, but nobody went bust. They got their reserves. They knew what was coming and they weathered it very well. And by this stage, of course, they weren't just investing in government bonds, I think. They also were investing in the UK as well at that point? 
Yes, because what was happening in the 20s and certainly in the 30s is you had quite high yields on your domestic preferred stock and shares. And so they were buying those. And in fact, what's interesting is investment trusts moved into equities quite late, but not preferred shares, but ordinary shares. But they ended up being the conduit for insurance companies to buy equities. When insurance companies started buying equities in the late 1920s, when they realised that reinvested earnings you shouldn't just look at the dividend yield, you should look at the earnings yield, you should look at what they were doing with the reinvested securities. So insurance companies decided they wanted to get into the equity market, but they didn't really know anything about it. So they used to buy investment trusts, which held equities. So investment trusts were very canny because they switched from overseas bonds to domestic equities, but they were still heavily invested in Argentina until 1930. But you have to remember that it was in 1930 that the UK overtook Argentina in GDP per capita. Yes, it's easy to forget that. South America was a very uh, popular destination. And as you say, Argentina, particularly because of the Vesti family and so on, were making lots of money out of meat and cattle. And it was, as you say, a very large market indeed in stock market terms. So bully for the UK. And that's, of course, why, unlike the US, we still have a significant number of investment trusts, which do date back to the 19th century. They survived all these things that happened, World War One, the Wall Street crash, World War Two, and so on. By the time we came out of the war, they were well established and had a particular strategy. So that was interesting. And in the States, of course, the Investment Companies Act launched the whole kind of mutual fund business, which dominates still in the US and to a lesser extent over in other markets. But then let's roll forward to the 1990s and let's talk about an episode which is still a black mark in the history of investment trusts, which is the so-called split capital crisis, which built up during the 1990s, at least before it all collapsed. Uh, Perhaps you could just remind us, any of those who aren't familiar with what split capital investment trusts are, or indeed were, most of them have disappeared now, and why they got into trouble. Well, basically, it's sort of reminiscent of the role forward to 2008, because what they were doing was dismantling shares in investment trusts. So what they did was they said, look, you can split an investment trust's cash flows, future cash flows into different packages, and they're worth more as separate packages as they are as an investment trust because they were trading at a discount at that time. So what they did was they said, okay, you can have capital shares where you don't get anything. You fix a maturity date and you get the capital value of the share when it expires, as it were, at the end of its life. And so that's a huge risk. Or you could take in income shares where you just got the dividends, but you didn't get the capital. And the other thing they invented was zero dividend preference shares, which was a way of borrowing money to invest. But there was a predetermined cost that you say you bought in at 50 and they promised to pay you 100 after 20 years or whatever. And so you knew what your return was going to be. And they were marketed as safe as houses, as safe as gilts. Nobody had ever defaulted on a zero dividend preference share. And there was a coterie of investment trusts called the Magic Circle who took that to extremes and they started doing exactly what the Americans have done for the 1920s bull market. They started holding each other's securities, they were leveraging too much and they were marketing this to the retail market, saying to people you're going to make a capital gain rather than your income. So you'll pay capital gains tax rather than income tax, which is lower. And the people bought them for their school fees. I remember very well. It was particularly uh, financial advisors and wealth managers uh, used them because they said they were ideal for paying school fees, for example, uh, if your children were being privately educated. They were marketed very heavily as that and as well as being safe as houses. And it was essentially financial engineering, as you say, but it was financial engineering, which is a problem in itself, saying that uh, A plus B plus C equals something more than the sum of those three, but also because of this uh, leverage, which was both sort of absolute, and of course, through the cross holdings, was uh, piling leverage on leverage again. So in fact, it was a rerun of what happened in the 1920s in America. But somehow, the lessons of that history were not learned. So how can one explain that? It's just long, you know, you end up in a position where you're trying to maximise the value of the investment trust. So for example, at one point, when investment trusts were trading at a discount, pension funds were buying them as a portfolio of assets, which they then put into the pension funds, and that got rid of the discount. And the way of getting rid of a discount using splits was to have a fixed maturity. 
and to then, as I said, unbundle the cash flow. But I remember being very cross when I looked at the prospectuses of these things because they used to show you the top 10 holdings, but they didn't show you that they were shed loads in illiquid other split trust security. What was the lesson that we as investors could draw from that? Just stepping back a moment. Obviously, there were mistakes that were made. Was it a regulatory failure, would you say? Or was it a case of caveat emptor? Or was it simply an inability to learn the lessons of the past, which you would have thought that qualified financial advisors and so on should not have made those mistakes? Well, I think it was partly regulatory because it turned out that investment trusts were not regulated in the same way that unit trusts were. And so you ended up with the head of the FSA, Sir Howard Davis, having to take his begging bowl round to the 40 firms that had been particularly bad in this magic circle and asking them, please, will you help towards the compensation fund, which ended up about 50p in the pound. And some of them didn't pay. But, you know, they regulated it a bit afterwards. But it was definitely a failure of the regulators to include investment trusts and to allow this split structure to take place. But I guess the investment trusts themselves, presumably they were pushing the argument that we don't want to be regulated, there's no need to regulate us. We've been around for more than 100 years and so on. I don't suppose there were many investment trust boards that were actually actively seeking regulation at that point. Well, the problem was that the investment trusts were companies, so they were subject to company rules and they were listed on the stock market, whereas unit trusts are different because they're not listed in the same way. So it's sort of more obvious to regulate unit trusts because you might think that company law would be enough for the investment trust. Right. It didn't work (laughs) indeed. And so now we do have regulation in the investment trust sector. Well, we don't have spirit capital trusts anymore. There's about a half a dozen, I think, which have survived and uh, still there. But we're not going to see any more come, I don't think, in the future. How badly did this experience of split capital trusts affect sentiment towards investment trusts? You mentioned earlier, for example, a lot of institutions were investors in investment trusts, but they've been getting out of investment trusts already uh, in the latter 20 years of the last century for various reasons. But do you think it's had a permanently damaging impact on the investment trust sector? No, because the split capital trust thing was a very much of a clique of fund managers who cross. I mean, Aberdeen was one of the ones that was involved, and, and that's renamed itself and moved on. So I think it's surprisingly few people know that this was an episode in the investment trust history, I think. Right. You could argue that the strength of the basic investment trust structure is still sufficiently uh, valuable to uh, enable the sector to continue in existence and to thrive, indeed. It's thrived uh, significantly since the global financial crisis in particular. And a lot of private investors now do use investment trusts far more than they did in the past. So what is the lesson for the investors, do you think? Apart from studying financial history, you just have to be alert and not believe everything you are told by uh, fund managers or indeed advisors who are perhaps standing to profit from selling you things. I think you want to know what's in the portfolio in detail and not just the top 10 holdings. You You need to know what they're investing in. You need to know that they've got an investment strategy which is consistent and you need to look at their debt to see how much leverage they've got. One thing we haven't mentioned is the investment discount or premium, which adds a bit of excitement on top. So over the years, you know, we've had discounts of 30% or premiums of 10 or 20%. Sometimes they're not explainable. It's to do with market euphoria. But you have to bear in mind when you buy an investment trust that you might make money or lose money with the change in the discount or premium. Yes, and that's a particularly live issue at the moment, particularly with a number of these so-called alternative asset trusts, where they publish NAVs, but the shares currently trade at huge discounts, 40 50% in some cases. Is that always a warning sign, or is it actually just a, an indication that you really need to study what these investment trusts are in it? Well, I think it's both. You need to study and you need to look at them in depth. What we found when we did research on investment trusts in the past was that they had quite a variety, even at the same point in history, of discounts and premiums, but there was definitely a shift. Before the First World War, they were at a discount, and then they went in the foolish 1920s to a premium, and then they oscillated dramatically over time. So when you're, for example, in a new sector, everybody wants to be in the sector, then you trade at a premium. But on the whole, it tends to be a discount, which adds, in a sense, leverage to your investment. So if you'll allow me to say this, I mean, you've been analysing and studying financial markets for many years. I had the pleasure of reading one of your 
textbooks about how to invest in the market, explaining the different types of assets and so on. Just overall, do you think that over the years, the problems of people investing without sufficient knowledge, have they got worse or is it always the same? There's always a lot of people who are perhaps more susceptible than they should be to uh, the hard sell or even a soft sell. Well, I think what I find shocking is that financial institutions issue products which, for example, I've done an article of Rose by any other name, they call them bonds, but actually they're investing in equity. So there's a lot of misleading people. And I've been shocked to see that institutions are happy to pay fines because they still make more money mis-selling than they do in paying the fine. And so I think regulators should be, in a sense, trying to regulate before these things are issued. Have a look at them before, not pick up the pieces afterwards, which is a very expensive and time-consuming and stressful thing for investors. I mean, that must be true. But I guess the argument normally put is that, well, they're bound to be behind the curve. They can't keep up. You know, there's a lot of innovation in this industry, a lot of incentives to uh, create new products and sell them to people, possibly with misleading names, as you say. Um, So they're always going to slightly be behind the curve. But you're saying they could do a lot more than that. Why didn't they employ people like you, Jeanette, to keep them sensible and tell them where the problems are likely to occur? Well, I don't know. That's something we can ponder on. Maybe I know too much. (laughs) Indeed. But on the subject of investment trusts, just to finish off, can I ask you this? Are you an investor in investment trust yourself? Do you like the structure? Yes, I like the structure. I I mean, I I used to hate unit trust because of the charges and the bid-ask spread and the commissions. And in fact, investment trusts, because they're listed on the stock exchange, tended to be much cheaper as a product to buy. And I've always liked it. When they were invented in the 1860s, they were invented by lawyers and accountants. So in a sense, sensible, professional men who knew how to structure a portfolio, what a trust was, because originally they were in a trust structure like pension fund before they became companies and were listed on the stock exchange. I suppose the other question I then ask in that context is you have had a distinguished academic career in studying finance. Are you a believer in the efficient markets hypothesis? And do you think, therefore, that uh, there's a strong case for indexing and so on? There are other arguments for indexing, but uh, where would you stand on that? Yes, I'm more of an efficient market. I, I have daily conversations with my son who tries to make money out of inefficient markets. And so far, I think I'm winning in terms of how much money he's making. <laughs> yeah, well, the efficiencies do exist. I'm sure you agree some of them do, but they're quite hard to find. And in the meantime, I think there are arguments for passive as well. So it's been a yeah. great pleasure talking to you, Jeanette. Thank you for your words of wisdom. Are you continuing this research into investment trusts? Are there other things we're going to Absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, we started in the 1860s and we're now up to the 1940s. We've got a PhD student working on it as we speak. Well, that's something to look forward to. Will you be uh, sort of publishing material about that? Yes, absolutely. Very good. So that was Jeanette Rutherford, Professor Emeritus at the Open University and author of a splendid standard textbook on finance. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.